What's up, Hyperfast Nation? Our guest today built up a portfolio of 38 doors by the age of 26, becoming financially free in her early 20s with $20,000 a month in passive income. Welcome to the show, Rachel Richards. Welcome to the show today, Rachel. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on today to talk about the amazing things you've done at, you know, really such a young age in real estate. And I think your story really just shows that, you know, you don't you don't have to like wait till you're 40, even 30 to like live a financially free lifestyle, which is like goes goes against what we're kind of taught, right? Yeah. So, why don't you just give our listeners here and viewers on YouTube a little bit of background on who you are and you know how how you built a financially free lifestyle so fast. Yeah, for sure. I am a lot of things. I'm a former financial advisor and a best-selling author and I scaled my portfolio from 0 to 38 doors by the age of 26. Um, and a lot of people ask how I did that, so I'll clarify a few things up front, which is that I'm not a trust fund baby. <laughs> <laughs> and I never made six figures from my job or my career. I started off making 36,000 and then 32,000 and then 42,000. So by no means was I raking it in. I started with $10,000 in savings. Um, my ex-husband also had 10 grand in savings, so we pooled that together to get to our first $20,000 down payment. So that's kind of how I got started. I started investing in 2017, investing in real estate, and I also self-published my first book in 2017. So I had these two passive income streams, rental income and royalty income, and I really focused on growing those as much as I possibly could over the next few years. And then by 2019, when I was 27, I had 10 grand a month in passive income just from my real estate and I was able to quit my job and become financially independent. So that is kind of the high level overview of what I did. What was the book about? Uh, it was about personal finance and I have two books now and I didn't think that either of them were going to do well, but to, to my surprise, they really resonated with female millennials and took off. And I now make anywhere between like four and $8,000 a month in royalties from them. Oh, wow. That's, pretty good <laughs> yeah yeah so, yeah they did better than I thought and it's a now a good chunk of my passive income how did how did you get started like well describe your first deal like how you found it why you even were looking for it and, and you know how it went yeah for sure I'm a very much a finance nerd and I have been my whole life so I was reading finance books in middle school I was that cool kid um, but I read <laughs> rich dad poor dad in high school and that's what turned me on to real estate investing. So I think I always had the mindset that I didn't want to work in a corporate job my whole life. And I was a bit of a rebel just in that I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. And I wanted to kind of have my own freedom or at least work for myself. So when I learned about real estate investing, I was in love with it. And I was like, okay, this is my path. This is my way out. So I'm going to figure out how to do this. So of course there was a lot of fears and we can talk about that. I, you know, I thought I didn't have enough knowledge, not enough money, not enough experience. So I waited for a while, but I still was able to get started when I was 24 years old. 
And I found my first duplex because I was looking off market. And I think of a lot of investors now are like, well, how do I invest mm. in this market? With high interest rates and appreciation has made all the prices so high in a lot of these markets. Or if, if somebody lives in California, you know, it's really difficult. I think one of the keys to finding a good deal in this market is to invest out of state and to find off market deals because everyone's looking on Zillow. Everyone's looking at the MLS. It's too competitive. It's too saturated. So if you want to find a good deal, you really have to be willing to do what no one else is willing to do. And you have to look at probate leads and go to auctions and drive for dollars and put up bandit signs and all of these creative methods. So what I was doing is I actually had my real estate license back then, not for my own clients, but just for my own purposes as an investor. And I was looking at all of the expired and canceled and withdrawn listings on the MLS and following up with the agents. And I was saying, hey, what happened? Is the seller still open to an offer? You know, why did this come off of the market? I, I'm interested in this property. So I would follow up with these agents every couple weeks for months and months. I was very persistent. And I finally snagged this duplex in Louisville, Kentucky. I it bought it a, with it my ex. It was expired. Okay. It was an expired yeah. listing, basically. It was an expired listing. Yeah. The seller had taken it off the market and they were going to <laughs> relist it. So, and before they did, because I had followed up with them so much and I was top of mind, they were like, hey, we're about to relist this. Do you want to make an offer before we do? And I was like, yes, absolutely. So I snagged the duplex for a hundred grand. And I know the Californians listening are like, I can't even buy a parking spot for that <laughs> amount of money. Right. <laughs> so I encourage you to invest out of state. Um, but that was back in 2017. And again, my ex and I each had 10 grand saved. So we pulled that together to get to the $20,000 down payment. And that's how we purchased and found our first investment property. Wow. Yeah, I, the expired and withdrawn, I think, is is overlooked by investors and by real estate agents. So it's, it's one of the best ways in this market right now to get listings. And, you know, you really can just buy a Red X account and hit the phones for an hour a day. But most most people won't do it. Yeah. And it's it's actually one of the easier ways. Um, you can just ask an agent too to send you like all the expired listings in the last 60 days and then use your agent or follow up yourself. It's really not that much more work, but not a lot of people are doing it. So I think it's well worth looking into. What, um, what other methods have, have you used to acquire deals off market? Driving for dollars where you go drive around the neighborhoods you're interested in, write down the address look up the property owner and then do a direct mail campaign um, bandit signs where you post up those signs that say we buy houses quick cash offers um, and some of these i've done with a partner and some of them i've done myself probate leads pre-foreclosure leads short sales um, just networking there's so many different there's probably eight or ten different ways you can find off-market deals right. and uh did you, when, what was the biggest size you, you bought? Like, I'm, I assume you jumped up from duplexes to quads or, or even bigger. Mm -hmm. We had at one point a 12 unit and it was a boarding house property. So the previous sellers had converted a quad into a boarding house style property, meaning rent by the room. So instead of renting it to four tenants, they had 12 independent leases because they were renting it out by the room. 
So we consider that a 12 unit because we had 12 tenants. And that was, we bought that for $430,000. And that was the most expensive wow. property. But actually, that's in terms of the most expensive, three weeks ago, I just closed on a duplex in Denver. And that was $780,000. So that's now my most expensive property. Not the biggest, though. And so you, you got up to... What was it? It was 20K a month in, in cash flow, and then you started to sell off some of your, your doors. Is that correct? Yes. It, yes, that's correct. And what, so, what and led this to that is, decision? <laughs> yeah, good question. There was a lot that went into it. This is when my ex and I were still together, and we sold a lot of our portfolio, and it didn't have to do with our divorce. It was about a year before. And we had these three boarding houses by that point, and they were each about 10 to 12 units. So it made up a large part of our portfolio. The thing with these boarding houses is that they were cash cows, okay? They were making two to three grand a month in pure profits every single month. And it was, the hu it was like a 30% cash on cash ROI. Mm. So really profitable properties but they were not as passive as a lot of the other properties in portfolio in our portfolio and i always tell people owning real estate isn't 100 percent passive right even right. when you have a property manager there's still an aspect of manage the manager it's not 100 percent passive like investing in the stock market but it's still way more passive than a nine to five job right so that's why i still consider it passive income but even with the boarding houses there was a lot more work involved because they just the tenants that we had the maintenance issues that we had we joked that it was like we had 34 adult children because <laughs> they they there were just issues there were complaints they were like this guy stole food out of the fridge you know my food out of the fridge and stuff like that so it was very hands-on in terms of owning rental property um not only that but there were a couple fires very small fires. Luckily, no one was hurt. Nothing major happened. Just some small damages that we had to have repaired. But I just started feeling really nervous because there was a fire on the first floor of a three-level triplex that 12 people lived in. And I just started thinking, oh my God, what if that had gotten out of hand? What if people were hurt? And of course, I had all of the LLC and umbrella liability policies that I needed. But still, how do you live with yourself if somebody, something right. happens on your property? So in terms of the operational effort that went into owning these and the liability and just the peace of mind it came time we were ready to sell these properties um, we started when we started off in our real estate investing journey we didn't have a lot of money but we had a lot of time so we were willing to hustle and to make these work and they served their purpose later on in our journey when we had a lot more money we just wanted to have more passive income streams so we sold those three boarding houses in 2021 great time to sell we made a ton of profit i think on one of them we profited like 200k in appreciation so it was a great time to sell and it was the right decision for us what are you looking for now to put your money in or, or deals to find i really love syndications now have you done any syndication investing it's my favorite thing yeah we've we've been on both sides of, of syndications so. yeah okay so i'm just an lp so, and for those, of those, for those of you listening who haven't invested in a syndication before, a syndication is when someone goes out and finds, for example, a $10 million apartment complex. And let's say she can't buy it herself. She can form something called a syndication, which is where she raises funds from investors, people like you and me, and we can invest 25, 50, 75K into this apartment complex and become a part owner. 
So we're not just lending this person our money and getting interest. We're actually becoming a part equity owner in this apartment complex, and we're entitled to a share of the profits. So we can get quarterly cash flow distributions. And if this apartment complex is ever refinanced or sold, we are entitled to a share of those profits as well. So that's what it is. That's how it works. The reason I didn't start off doing this is because I didn't have big chunks of money to invest. I didn't have right. 50K, 75K lying around, so I couldn't. Now that I have more money, I can invest into these syndications. And I love them because they're completely passive. This is, to me, this is the only way to invest in real estate that actually is 100% passive. And you still get all of the benefits of directly owning real estate because you do directly own it. Um, you get the K-1, you get the depreciation, you get the cash flow, you get all of those benefits. So that's why I love it because I want to be a true passive investor now. So I've only invested as, as an LP or limited partner so far. And I'm invested in 10, I believe. I think I have 300K total invested. And they're, they're multifamily deals, most of them? Most of them are multifamily. Mm -hmm. I have a couple mobile home parks and a laundromat and an industrial warehouse. What do you look for in the deal and in the operator? Like, how do you, how do you find them and then how do you vet them? Okay, the, yes, I love these questions. In the deal, what I look for is something that is already cash flowing up front. So there are some deals where it's like new construction and it's a new development. So it's not gonna be cash flowing and it's just an appreciation play. Some people love that, but I'm more of a conservative investor. So I've never been one to invest for appreciation. I wanna see that it's already making money and it's already cash flowing. So I'm looking for cash flow up front and I'm also looking to get my principal back as quickly as possible. So I avoid syndications where it's like a 10 year hold and you don't get your principal back until 10 years or seven years. I really like you know three or five year holds or if it's a five or seven year hold, if there's a refinance, like mm -hmm. in year three or four where I get part of my principal back at least, then I'll consider that. So those are the, some of the things. But a lot of people are like, well, how do you find a good syndication? And to your point, one of the questions you asked me is how do you find a good operator? I think it, it is more about how do you find a good syndicator in the first place? Because if you can find a good person, then chances are they're going to be managing their deals well and they'll do rest of the work correctly. So if you have like five hours to spend on this, I would recommend you spend three or four hours doing due diligence on the syndicator and one or two hours doing due diligence on the deal. Right. And the way that I've found the best indicators is through introductions. So being introduced directly to somebody, um, whether it's an investor I trust, a friend, somebody who has already invested with them and can speak for them and say, hey, this person's great, he has a lot of experience. That's the way I've been, I've found the best indicators. And for anyone listening, I'm happy to make introductions for some of the indicators that I've worked with and I like a lot. You can email my team, look at my website, moneyhoneyrachel.com. Happy to help. And also the book, um, The Hands-Off Investor by Brian Burke, it has been so helpful on my learning journey about syndication investing. What's, what's something that you know now that you wish you knew at the start of your investing career? Ooh. I could, there's so many things because I've made so many mistakes and I'm glad you asked that because I think a lot of time we look at people and they're like, wow, they're doing everything right. But in reality, I did everything wrong. It feels like I've lost money. I've made mistakes. I've hired the wrong people. 
I would say there's one big mistake, and I keep relearning it, um, which is don't hire the cheapest person. And I started off in my journey with this very frugal mindset, which has helped me succeed and become financially independent at a young age. But when you take that frugal mindset too far, it can hurt you, right? There's a difference between frugal and cheap. And there were times where I actually just became too cheap. So when I went to hire my first property managers, I went with the cheapest option instead of the best option. And being too cheap can cost you a lot more money in the long run. So when I hired the cheap property managers, and then six months in, they stole $6,000 of rent money from me one weekend, that cost me a lot more money. Whereas if I had gone with the reputable, licensed, insured property management company that actually cost more, that likely wouldn't have happened with them. And when you're building your team and hiring people, that's not the place to cut corners, right? You don't want to go with the cheapest option. And that goes for your attorney, your CPA, your contractor. The cheapest option is rarely the best option. So keep that in mind. Again, I'm saying this and I'm hoping I also hear this message because I keep making this mistake. So that's one lesson. And I think in terms of syndication investing specifically, one thing I didn't think to ask a few years ago was about the debt that the syndicators were taking on with their investments and, mm. and asking them, hey, what is the interest rate on your bridge loan? What's the interest rate cap that you purchased on this? And are the projections on the syndication, did you run it at the interest rate cap? And if so, what do the projections look like at the interest rate cap? Because I'm in one syndication right now that's underwater and that's losing money and they're gonna be probably doing a capital call in the next few months. And it's because they didn't run their projections at the interest rate cap because they didn't think there's any way the interest rate would go all the way up. And so that's now a question I'm asking all of my syndicators. Um, so you live and you learn, and that's just something I didn't think to ask then that I know to ask now. So um, I think the moral of the story is like, you're, there's always, you're never gonna know everything, but you just have to get started and you're gonna learn a lot more from your mistakes than just from holding yourself back from years and years. So just get started. Yeah, I think one of the challenges in selecting syndicators is if you, people can have a 10 year track history and it's it's all, you know, going back to 2013, it's all in a really, really, really good market. So, yes. you know, people, people can have deals that succeeded, but maybe wouldn't have if the market didn't end up doing what it did in terms of appreciation and rent growth. Like, and it's just been tremendous. And maybe that will continue. Um, maybe, maybe not, who knows, but how do you, how do you mitigate against that when you can, you could, someone could have a, a decade of experience, but it's, it's all in a really, really favorable market. Yeah, you're right. Because it's hard to go wrong the last 10 years. You know, all, it's hard to have a bad deal as a syndicator if you started syndicating 2010 and forward. So I think it's about asking the right questions, making sure their underwriting is really conservative and that they're really using worst case scenarios and being really, really realistic. So now that's what I'm looking for. And there are certain underwriters that I see and I'm like, wow, this, this is really conservative. They're really using rent projections that are super low. 
and the exit cap rate is very conservative. And, you know, I just look for these things. And the more you do it, the more you, you'll get better at that. Um, but there's one that really stands out who has really conservative underwriting. And that's why I've invested with him over and over again. I'd rather invest with somebody who under promises and over delivers. Whereas right. there's some syndicators, you see their projections and they look amazing, right? But anyone can project anything they want it to project. You have to take their projections with a grain of salt. So I think it's just about don't get caught up in the, the high ROI that you might see and really pay attention to their underwriting. So looking ahead, you know, we, we had this last couple of years have been kind of nuts with rent and appreciation, you know, going through the roof and the market slowed down in the second half of 22 and, you know, rates went up a lot. Now they've started to come down with the banking crisis. And there's some people that are arguing that what the Fed is doing is actually like bigger quantitative easing, you know, letting these banks trade their bonds in at, at par instead of market value. Where where do you think we go in terms of like market inflation, all the stuff that's kind of in the news lately? Oh, it's my favorite question because I don't have an answer for it. Um, cool. yeah, <laughs> uh, knows, there's right? this meme and it's like, when you come home and you're, you're, you're a real estate person and your whole family's like, so what's going to happen in the market this year? And they're all expecting an answer. And it's like, I have no idea. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball. But the, and I don't pay much attention to it even, which might sound surprising to a lot of people. The reason for it, though, is because the way that I invest should not and won't, in my opinion, depend on what happens in the market. Because again, it goes back to, do you invest for cash flow or appreciation? I'm not investing for appreciation. I'm not counting on appreciation to happen in my financials. And when I'm talking about investing, I'm talking about you know buying a duplex, buying a triplex, buying your own rental properties in the market. I think a lot of people who are caught up in what's happening with the housing prices over the last couple of years and banking on appreciation, those are the people who are gonna be in trouble and who are really concerned about what's happening in the market. I think now is a great time to invest, and I would say that about any market, because real estate, in my opinion, wins in the long run. When you when you invest for the long run and when you invest for cash flow, real estate will always win in the long run. That's my opinion. So I'm investing for cash flow. My properties cash flow now, they're going to cash flow if the prices of my properties go down as well. And I always do a break-even analysis, so I always know, okay, hey, if I have to lower, how much can I lower my rent and still break even? I always know that number. On the duplex I just bought in Denver, I know that I can lower my rents by $2,000 a month and still break even. Like that's a crazy break even number for a duplex in Denver. So I just, I invest very conservatively. And because of that, I'm not concerned about what the market does. What are you doing outside of, you know, you have your syndications, doors you own, the books. Uh, what other businesses or income opportunities are you involved in or looking at? Yeah, I have some other like smaller passive income streams. Um, I have I have like 20,000 invested in Fundrise, which that's also a real estate investing income stream. I have some affiliate income through my business and I have a print on demand business. It doesn't make much, but it's a really cool way to make passive income for anyone who's just new to the world of passive income and doesn't know where to begin. That's where you can create designs put them on products like t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, and then put them on a platform. And you don't have to purchase inventory. You don't have to ship these products or be involved at all. You only get paid if and when the product sells and you get paid a royalty. 
So it's a really, in my opinion, risk-free way to create a passive income stream without having to put a bunch of financial um, risk into it. So that's a print-on-demand stream. I started that in 2017, and my biggest month I made $1,700, and now, and I haven't touched it in five years. It's literally 100% passive. I now make like 100 or $150 a month completely passively. Awesome. Well, before we uh, wrap up, I always like to do a hyper-fast round if you're ready for a few rapid-fire questions yes. and answers. Let's do it. All right. What's your biggest piece of advice to a new real estate investor? My biggest piece of advice is to embrace mistakes because if anyone listening is a perfectionist or a control freak like I am, super fun traits to have, um, you might get <laughs> caught up on not wanting to make a mistake. And I kept wanting to feel more prepared because I didn't want to make a mistake that would cost me money. I didn't want to make a mistake that would cost me time. So I kept waiting and I read more books and listened to more podcasts and went to more conferences. And those things are all great and they helped immensely. But you also have to embrace the fact that mistakes will happen no matter what, because there's always going to be you don't know what you don't know. So once you just accept the fact that you will make mistakes no matter what, it will be help. It'll help you more to take that first step. So embrace mistakes. All right. What's the biggest mistake you see seasoned investors making? Oh, seasoned investors making. That's a good question. Um, I think seasoned investors get caught up a lot in like when the market is hot still. And I, and I still see seasoned, new investors do this too, but definitely seasoned investors do this where, you know, same thing we kind of just talked about if the prices are going up a lot, it's this sense of FOMO. Like I have to get in while the market's hot. So I think there's just too much of that frenzy and getting caught up in that and not wanting to miss out rather than just taking a little bit more of a logical approach instead of giving into their emotions. What, um, what's the biggest mistake you've made in your real estate career and what did you learn from it or how did you overcome it? Okay, besides the property manager one, because that was probably the biggest one, I would say there was another mistake I made when I had a property that was under renovation and it was vacant, it was being renovated. And a couple days after renovation started, my contractor called and he said, bad news, the property got broken into last night. And just to give you some context, the day before we had $15,000 worth of appliances, brand new appliances delivered to the property. And so I was like, oh my God, did the, are the appliances still there? And he was like, yes. And I was like, okay, thank God. Um, so luckily I didn't lose a ton of money. It was probably just a couple of teenagers that broke in and stole whatever they could carry and vandalized the place, but it could have been so, so much worse. So it was a really big mistake in my mind. And I know a lot of seasoned investors probably listen to this and they're like, that's so silly that you didn't like protect your property. Because I think a lot of us think about having the LLC and having the umbrella insurance policy, which is really obvious to some of us. And yes, you should have that. But what slipped my mind that week was physically protecting my assets as well. Because the first thing you should do when you close on a property especially one that's vacant and being renovated, is you need to change the locks and put up some security cameras, whether they're fake or real, put up security stickers, make <laughs> sure you are securing that physical asset as well. I like the, the fake camera idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
what uh, what's something that you'd most likely be doing when you're not working on your business or in real estate? Love this question. I hike all the time. I weightlift at the gym. I travel 50% of the time. So I'm about to go on a one month trip to Colombia and I'm going to be working on my salsa dancing. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, last one. Where do you see yourself five years from now? Um, hopefully doing something similar because I feel really fortunate to say that I love my life right now and I feel like I've built something very intentional. So working 10 to 15 hours a week and then doing all the things that I love with the rest of my time and traveling to cool places around the world. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I know you mentioned before uh, we started that you, you have a, a free gift you can offer our listeners. So I'll give yes. you a chance to talk about that. Yeah, thanks, Dan. And if anyone wants to follow me on Instagram, my IG is Money Honey Rachel. And what I'd love to do for you all is if anyone wants to download my passive income starter kit, I will give that for free. So you can download that at moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash passive income. All right. What, what was that again? Money, honey, just money, honey, Rachel.com <laughs> forward okay. slash passive income. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Rachel. And to all of our listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in. Please share this episode with other people that you think would benefit from these amazing lessons. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.